I used to spend my summers as a child on the coast of Chile. Along the ocean road, there were craft stands selling a variety of things from impossibly large pumpkins to fine weave baskets and shallow copper pans for preparing jam. But no matter what was their product, they all offered large bunches of tightly bound cochayuyo, or strands of kelp. My father swore by the powers of dried kelp and said that a bit of it every day kept a person young and strong. I didn't follow his advice, but I do drink the occasional breakfast miso soup, which I pack with so much seaweed, it's a mini kelp forest in a cup. Kelp forests cover 25% of the world's coastline. Unlike the kelp forests of Chile and South Africa's Cape Peninsula, which are mostly stable, all of the kelp forests of the Northern Hemisphere are rapidly declining. Off the coast of California, kelp forests have declined more than 95%, with just a few small isolated patches remaining, mainly because of rising water temperatures. Kelp, called the sequoias of the sea for their capacity to store large amounts of carbon dioxide and increase oxygen levels, are home to nearly 1,000 species. These giant towers of seaweed also act as wave breakers, reducing coastal erosion. Ahead of the November COP26 Leader Summit in Glasgow, the Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change, the Global Scientific Authority on Climate Change, issued a report on August 10th stating that some of the changes are now irreversible. Within the next two decades, temperatures will rise more than 1.5 degrees centigrade from pre-industrial levels. This year, we have seen unprecedented fires in Greece, Turkey, Siberia, Italy, and California. When the Amazon burned in 2019, a lot of interest shifted towards underwater forests. According to National Geographic, 3.8% of the federal waters off the California coast, that's 0.065% of the global ocean suitable for growing microalgae, could neutralize emissions from the state's $50 billion agriculture industry. Mostly due to labor costs, 98% of cultivated seaweed comes from Asia. The rest of the world, including the US and Europe, have much catching up to do. My guests today, each in their own fields, believe that kelp holds the key for cooling the planet. Samantha Dean, Director of Partnerships and Investor Relationships at Kelp Blue in the Netherlands, discusses how growing and managing large-scale giant kelp farms along the Benguela current off the coast of Namibia is a promising start for capturing CO2 and sequestering at depth so it can never return into the atmosphere. Ronan Skillen, a master percussionist who plays unusual instruments from all over the world, and Johnny Blundell, music producer for Root Spring House, a South African organization dedicated to fostering local and indigenous music talent, tell us about collaborating among many others with Yo-Yo Ma for My Amphibious Soul, a symphony played with kelp instruments that will bring awareness and resources, hopefully, to saving natural kelp forests. And Amos Nahum, a master underwater photographer from Israel based in Monterey, and one of only five people ever to swim and photograph polar bears underwater. 
This epic swim and all the work leading to it is documented in the film Picture of His Life, released in 2020. Amos Nahum describes the surreal experience of diving in 40 to 50 foot tall vegetation. Please join us. Welcome, Samantha. Thank you, Paula. Lovely to be here. What is Kelp Blue? Kelp Blue is a new company. It is only 14 months old. Um, mm. That is based in the Netherlands. It is the creation of Daniel Hoft, who is the CEO and founder, uh, who came across a naturalist, a professor called Tim Flannery in Australia. Mm-hmm. Tim uh, has been talking about the power of seaweed for many years, saying Mm -hmm. that we have a big problem with climate change. It is urgent and planting trees is not enough. So we should Mm -hmm. be harnessing the power of seaweed, which is the fastest growing organism on the planet and therefore sequesters a a lot of CO2 as it grows. We Mm -hmm. should be harnessing that power in the ocean to do ocean sequestration of CO2. That's right. To do seaweed cultivation at scale, you really need to go offshore because all the near shore areas um, are very busy with other stakeholders, um, be mm-hmm. it shipping, be it fishermen, be it um, fin fish kind of aquaculture. Mm-hmm. To go offshore, you need to have a, a structure that is about 15 to 20 meters below the level of the sea surface because if not, it will get destroyed by the power of waves and and Mm -hmm. storms and then which is the seaweed that grows at least 15 to 20 meters then that is there is only one really which is the giant kelp and Mm -hmm. which is macrocystis spirifera so daniel focused on understanding how it grows what it needs to grow in which areas of the world it can grow Uh um, and that's when uh, kelp blue started tell us the difference between the giant kelp and the conventional sugar kelp, which is seasonal. Am I right? Correct. So there are 13,000 types of seaweed uh, on this planet, and there are Mm -hmm. about 30 types of kelps uh, within the seaweeds. Um, The giant kelp is, as I said, the fastest organism on the planet. It grows 50 to 60 centimeters per day and up to 65 meters in places like the Falkland. Uh, it is a perennial species. So unlike the sugar kelp, which is grown on on seed lines and mm-hmm. it has a seasonal time, so it remains in the water five to six months, it, the giant kelp, if it has a hold fast structure, something to hold on to, and mm-hmm. it is a waters that are apt for it, i.e. they're cold, they're transparent, there's enough sunlight, there's enough nutrients, then it can, it's perennial. So it can live 7, 20 years from the first kelp spore. So it means that uh, when you're doing these structures and the kelp and the giant kelp grows, you only need to harvest the top 10%, leaving the rest of the 90% to stay in the water uh, continuing its ecosystem services. And by ecosystem services, I mean uh, sequestering CO2, deacidifying uh, waters, oxygenating waters, filtering nutrients like nitrogen and phosphate, which help it uh, grow. On the surface, sea otters, cormorants and pelicans perch on the thick kelp. But about 30 feet below, 
sea lions, and seals make meals out of crustaceans and rockfish. In turn, along gray whales, seals use kelp to avoid becoming meals to killer whales. Animals rely on kelp for food and shelter. How large an area do we need to plant in order to have true impact on CO2? Well, if you listen to Tim Flannery, we need to plant four and a half times the size of Australia, about <laughs> 9% of the ocean. So uh, in a way, the bigger, the better. Um, yeah. And the macrocystis grows, uh, kelp grows in 25% of the world's coastlines. Macrocystis grows in uh, southern Cape of Africa, um, southern Argentina, Chile, Falklands, and North America, anything from Baja California up to uh, Alaska and yes. also in Australia and New Zealand. So there's a plenty of area around those uh, countries that could have macrocystis cultivation. By having a large farm or kelp forest, it makes sense to have mechanical harvesters. These mechanical harvesters have been around for, for more than a century. Off the coast of California in 1915, you had the mm -hmm. kelp cutters from, from wild kelp. Okay. So this is nothing new in terms of the concept of uh, harvesting mechanically. Um, from the 10% from that canopy, then you make products uh, to be economically sustainable so that you're not de depending on grants and donations. Uh, the, the products from the kelp itself, uh, they are nature-friendly or mm -hmm. nature-enhancing. For example, you can make biostimulants, which would replace chemical fertilizers. They help the plant create stronger roots and, and stronger yield in terms of fruit. You can make agri-feed to replace land-based food like soya. Um, you can make biopackaging mm -hmm. uh, to replace plastics. You can make uh, textiles to replace uh, land-intensive, water-intensive, chemical-intensive fabric, and pharmaceuticals and cosmetics. So that area of kelp, story, if you want, is the biotech area, the high-tech area. What is the relationship between Kelp Blue and the Kelp Forest Foundation? How do they so, nurture each other? So Kelp Blue uh, has a vision, has the how to do it. The vision is to rewild the oceans and uh, to help mitigate climate change. Mm -hmm. But the when we were looking into the quantification, the exact quantification of how much carbon this would be sequestering, for example, or how much biodiversity would these kelp forests uh, be boosting, there is not enough research. There is a big gap in the science. Mm -hmm. So in order to quantify the why, the why we're doing this, mm -hmm. uh, we set up the Kelp Forest Foundation, which is a nonprofit entity, which will be really focused on finding out exactly how much CO2 cultivated giant kelp will sequester. And there feeds into many areas. It feeds into carbon credits, for example, unleashing a lot of green financing for future kelp farmers. It also creates awareness that mm -hmm. we need to protect the wild kelp forest, but it also, uh, yeah, it, it helps change policy mm -hmm. uh, in seeing seaweed as something positive and something that regenerates uh, rather than something that gets sponged up with the rest of aquaculture. You can order so, a milkshake and then eat your straw after the milkshake. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, that would be. There's a lot of products that still need to be looked into and discovered, but the low-hanging fruit for us is has been biostimulants because, especially mm -hmm. in Europe, 
uh, farmers are trying to look for other ways of you know moving away from chemical fertilizers because the chemical fertilizers end up in lakes and rivers causing eutrophication arguably yes. but, you know very very negative for biodiversity in those waterways slowly we are shifting from single use plastics to sustainable options already kelp is playing an important role in compostable packaging liquid sachets cups even edible straws If we can consume a product and reincorporate its packaging into the earth, then we can truly say we're operating as one with nature. But more romantically and fun, with kelp, we can make music. just heard a bit of my amphibious soul, an ocean symphony played with instruments built in part with kelp. The way the music came to be involves Yo-Yo Ma's cello, which in February 2020 met its match when it played along a kelp flute, a whale eardrum found underwater, a mouth bow, and an abalone string instrument at a performance staged and recorded in Craig Foster's living room the producer and protagonist of My Octopus Teacher. Foster collaborated with Johnny Blundell, Ronan Skillen, who worked on the soundtrack for the film, and many others to produce this magnificent symphony. Johnny, Ronan, how did the idea for My Amphibious Soul come about? It's actually a, a longish story about how it came about. The <laughs> song itself is actually still incomplete. I mean, we're in the process of finding it still actually i think but the initial ideas came from my first interaction with the sea change project team which are a bunch of scientists as well as um filmmakers and directors and producers who are behind the octopus teacher movie it was basically uh, sparked by craig foster himself i had been involved in the soundtrack of my octopus teacher he then got hold of me and said Look, there's this guy who contacted me called Yo-Yo Ma, and he's coming to Cape Town for a series of concerts. But while he's here, he would like to connect, uh, particularly around uh, ocean conservation. And they were obviously the hot topic at the time. And um, I said, wow, okay, that's fantastic. So what do you want me to do? And basically he said, look, do you, do you think you could put me in touch or could you put a team together 
that could potentially uh, create something musical um, in a kind of a style of creating music that he called song catching, which was basically a way where we as a team then went on a dive with him in the ocean and basically the experience of being there was to evoke a certain feeling in us uh, or not or not at all depending on how we experienced it but whatever came was then to mm -hmm. be sort of influential in the music it's basically yeah. a kind of a combination of normal instruments shall we say and then a lot of percussion particularly the kelp octopus drum is what we ended up calling it we made this contraption out of a piece of wood and a and a chair actually that we we could tie these <laughs> these kelp strands to this and then i could play them like a percussion instrument and then we we put microphones at the at the end of the kelp strands and then you you get this really interesting kind of hollow drum sound Guys, yeah. don't tell anyone that this is work. This is so much fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was crazy in a way to think that it was possible at all. I mean, a lot of these ideas had already started shaping when I came on board. I mean, Craig Foster's son, Tom, have explored quite a lot of instruments in the ocean and found all kinds of interesting sounding objects that, that they brought, you know, to us. And it was very mm -hmm. fascinating to get involved there. The kelp is essentially alive it's breathing with us as we play it it's quite bizarre yes. and, and i mean it changes after playing it firstly your hands get quite sticky and mm -hmm. <laughs> yes and also you know the more it dries out the more that the sound of it changes um and we used that in the making of this rendition of, of the piece. There are various writers, there are various contributors. Johnny <clears throat> and I are kind of catalysts in the production team. Craig Foster and, and the singer Zolani, they collaborated on the lyrics quite a lot together. We also felt that we wanted to bring in an element that was ancient, traditional African sound. Another quite big influence on that version of the song was this woman called Madusini. Mm -hmm. And Madusini is um, in her late 70s and she's the foremost African traditional bow player in Southern okay. Africa. She brought that really ancient sounding African element into the song. The song at that point was partly a reflection of, of everybody's experience and connection with the kelp forest, but it was also meant to be a connection with Yo-Yo Ma, really. When people talk about that, quite possibly Southern Africa was the origin of mankind on the planet. Mm -hmm. And that these instruments, which were developed obviously out of hunting bows originally, were some of the first instruments that were around, as were some of these kelp instruments. So can you tell us a little bit about the kelp flute? That kelp flute, there are many forms of, of reed and, um, you know, original um, flutes like that, were, which were really just a pipe of some kind. When kelp dries on a beach, 
it's already mm-hmm. in a, a shape where you can play it in the way that our flute player Pedro Espy plays that flute. He holds his um, finger over the, the end, which is against his mouth. So he opens and closes the, the aperture of the flute at that end and then holds his hand at the opening at the other end of the flute, changes the, the tonality of the flute and uses mm-hmm. his breath to get different notes out of it. But it doesn't have any holes for your fingers along the side of the instrument. The conversation shifted very quickly from kelp flutes and drums to rugby. Pumas, the rugby team from Argentina, was playing South Africa the weekend of August 21st. I don't understand a thing about the sport, but I spent many weekend afternoons watching rugby at Cape Town pubs while I was studying there a few years ago. I promised Johnny and Ronan that I would root for them. We're we playing against Argentina this weekend, by the way. Oh, you do? <laughs> yeah. Well, good luck. I'll be secretly rooting for South Africa. <laughs> Is it the Springboks? Yes, the Springboks yeah. against Argentina, yeah. I ate some springbok also there. I don't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that's what the Argentines are planning to do this weekend. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, springboks won herbivores rule. The Sea Change Project hopes that my amphibious soul will help make the case to protect the kelp forests of South Africa under a UNESCO World Heritage status. Underwater Wild, a new book by Craig Foster and his partner, Ross Freilink will be released in November 2021. Underwater images are the only way most of us get to know those ecosystems. When Amos Nahum photographed polar bears swimming in Canadian Arctic waters in 2016, there were shots a decade in the making. Every year, Amos takes avid scuba divers and photographers to discover the habitats of elusive blue whales polar bears, and snow leopards with his big animals expeditions. Amos describes the wonders of diving the kelp forest of California as a photographer's or a painter's dream. Uh, Well, it is one of the most exciting, if I call it, uh, diving in a rainforest because it's a forest underwater. So you don't expect to be diving and diving in a forest. And to see vegetation that goes can go 30, 40, or 50 feet tall from the bottom of the rock all the way to the surface and all the life they live around them. Mm-hmm. It creates a lot of dynamic, either because of the wildlife, because of light, um, and because of the challenge that faced the, the diver or photographer to swim through it without getting hurt. And mm-hmm. there's all kind of kelp. There are the kelp that go tall, as most people know. Uh, like in California, um, out here in Monterey, where I live, and uh, other in San Diego or um, Channel Island. But there is also low-level kelp that live mostly in the cold, in the in the poles, Antarctica and the high Arctic. It's mm-hmm. different kind, it's some kelp, but is other low-level kelp that everything, the one on the, on the poles, is really close to the ground, very thick, very heavy. You need to need to lift up the, the the leaf in order to see what hide under them or what live among them. 
compared to the kelp that we have here in California, where it's stall and breathe and come to the surface and provide such a um, shelter for so many wildlife between the seals and otters, yeah, the sea otters, mm-hmm. which are find refuge there. They are playful, they are dynamic, and they, mm-hmm. are, they, are, they provide fun and joy and a lot of love to see how they act with each other and how they feed themselves. And of course, the different fish that live around there, around mm-hmm. the camp and other, other wildlife or other vegetation, mm-hmm. coral that, uh, or the sea urchin that find advantage because of the light and the shadow that the kelp uh, provide and they have a chance to, um, to grow and to go to flourish. Have you photographed or have you seen in the kelp forest big animals? like whales or any other big mammals? Yeah, well, uh, not so much. In California, there is not so mm-hmm. much uh, so much big animal among the kelp. We see mm-hmm. the seals. Sometimes we see the gray whale passing by. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, with the kelp that I dove in South Africa, uh, we see more, some, see also sharks among them. The seven gills shark in particular, mm-hmm. uh, the kelp of South Africa, we see some octopus, uh, in the kelp, both sides in South Africa, and also in um, also in Okinawa, and also mm-hmm. here in California. So you mentioned that the one in Antarctica and the Arctic are very different because they are so dense that you actually are almost in total shadows. No. Yeah. Well, yes, they are very they are very low kelp. They are not the tall kelp that goes all oh. the way to the surface. Okay. They are very they are very low. They are very thick. They're covering the ground. So oh, I see. They are, they are not standing tall, that you're not swimming among them. You're uh-huh. hovering over them, and then you have to move the, the leaf in order to see what live among them. Uh-huh. It's almost like a, like a kelp lawn. Like a, exactly, exactly, uh, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, and, I'm, and I'm sure the light that a kelp forest, you know, with the f- flickering of light is very special. It is very special because... You, the, the sun hiding behind at the early morning, midday, and late afternoon create different kind of shadows and the play of shadows and light in the water. For painter, for photographer, it is oh. a playground. The Arctic kelp forests that Amos Nahum describes are populated by many exotic creatures. Fish like the bull rout produces antifreeze proteins, which allow it to live in below freezing waters. The northern comb jelly looks like a spaceship. They're less mobile but equally interesting looking barnacles, crustaceans in many shades of pink, crabs and starfish. These environments may be far away from our lives, but their disappearance may mean ours as well. There are many foundations around the world focusing on kelp. I hope this episode has inspired you to get involved. Thank you to our guests and to our listeners, especially my dive buddies. And please don't forget to subscribe. Till next time.